0: Glad you guys are here this evening. Let me uh, say a a brief prayer, and we'll jump into our lesson. Lord, thank you for this evening. Thank you for bringing us all here together. We pray that as we open up your Word and listen to the teaching of Jesus, that it'll penetrate our minds and our hearts and make its way to our hands. We thank you and we love you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, that's the number to text your questions during class. I think it's also on the bottom of your handout. But if you have questions during class, text those in, and we'll try to answer as many as we can and kind of see what's on your mind. We are talking about the parables of Jesus. The reason we're talking about the parables of Jesus is really twofold. The reason I I really like to approach this is, number one, you get to see the breadth of the teaching of Jesus. We talked a little bit about how it's kind of popular today to what I call caricature Jesus will take certain teachings that are true but will bring them out of proportion and the others fade into the background and you end up getting not really an accurate picture of Jesus and what he taught. And the parables, as we go through the parables, we will get the full breadth of what Jesus had to say. Secondly, parables let Jesus speak in his own words and in in his intended way. And so we're going to just look at the parables, the teachings of Jesus... And then we're going to see what, you know, how does that fit into the big picture of what Jesus wants to talk about. And then I think we can really apply it to our lives. Last time we talked about the parable of the sower. The parable of the sower, and the, really it's about the four different kinds of soil, is a parable about parables. That's why we started with that. That's Jesus saying people's receptivity of their heart is going to vary. And we talked about weeding our garden not allowing the word, the implanted word, the word of God, the spirit of God using it to get choked out by the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of wealth. That We need to pull those weeds before they get big enough to choke out the word in our life and the fruitfulness of the word in our life. In this lesson, I'd like to talk about the foundational teaching of Jesus. These are the first parables you see Jesus talking about for a reason, because everything needs to be seen through this lens. But before I talk about that, I want to tee this up, and we're going to come back around. I want to talk about the idea of belonging. People want to belong. This is true. This is not a Christian thing. This is just a human thing. Humans want to belong, want to be part of the group. And in fact, everybody finds a group. They find an idea. They find a vision. They find a community. They find something. And they attach to you us. Know, sometimes that's healthy belonging, other times it's unhealthy belonging. But we all want to belong. I'll give you a great example. And sometimes this doesn't work out the way we want. I remember when I was in elementary school. I can't remember what state it was in because my dad was in the Air Force and moved around. Well, I think it was in Ohio. But anyway, I remember being in this school, and one of the things they had, because it was a neighborhood school and there were a lot of kids. Uh, walking to school is they had crossing guards. And in those days, I know this is going to sound crazy, but if you were in fifth grade, you could be a a crossing guard. I mean, there were no adults doing this. This was pure slave labor, I mean student labor. And so they get you, you got to wear this cool little vest, and you got to stand out, you know, and do the stop cars, tell the kids to come. And even better, you got to be late for first hour because you were crossings guard, so you came in late, so you netted out less time in school. I really wanted to be part of that elite group of crossings guards. I wanted the cool you know, thing you get to wear. I wanted that status. Let's face it, there's status when you wield power like that. Nope. Oh, you wait right there. You know, all right, come on now. Yeah, I mean, there's status there. And so maybe my ideas for belonging weren't that healthy, but they were belonging. And I remember getting into it. I mean, I I made the coveted crossing guard. I probably worked hard for a year. I I behaved way better than I needed to. And I finally was chosen, because people were chosen, and I became a crossing guard. Then when I became a crossing guard, I realized I didn't really like it. I mean, I didn't really want to belong. And later in life, I finally found a guy that put words to this phenomenon. Maybe you've seen this before. I really like this idea, and it kind of made me think, you know, I'm not sure I belong to a club that would accept me. I mean, there's kind of a really interesting twist there, isn't there? Well, I want to talk to you a little bit about belonging, but I'll come back to that in a little bit. First, I want to introduce these parables and this basic teaching of Jesus. I want to ask you a question. I want us to stop and think about this because the answer is probably not what you think. First of all, this is going to sound really elementary. Why did Jesus teach? You can read about it in the New Testament recording. Why did he teach? Why did he die on a cross? Why was he raised from the dead? In other words, why did Jesus do those things? Well, one of the obvious answers or one of the knee-jerk answers is, so I could go to heaven. Jesus came to earth, died on a cross, raised from the dead so that I could go to heaven. Now, I really don't want to burst anybody's bubble, but there's actually nothing in the Bible that says that. And I'm going to contend to you that that's not actually what Jesus was here to do. That may happen as a result of what Jesus was here to do, but that's not why Jesus came to teach, why he died on a cross, and why he was raised from the dead was not so self-centered that so that Terry could go to heaven ask the second question then well if it's not to save me and get me to heaven then maybe we gotta ask this question what did jesus think he was here to do what did jesus think he was here to do well interesting question about that is you know jesus moved from town to town in judea and outside judea in the gentile areas as well and he went from town to town and he was preaching or teaching in other words he he had a message he would go He would go into the synagogue sometimes. He would go into the town square. He would talk to people. He was preaching something. Have you ever wondered, what was he preaching? What was Jesus teaching? Because that's going to tell us, what did he think that he was here to do? Well, I'm going to tell you exactly. The New Testament's really clear about this. Here's what Jesus was preaching and teaching. You're going to see it right at the beginning of all the Gospels. From that time on, Jesus began to preach. Oh, good, what did he preach? Repent, because the kingdom of heaven is near. In Mark, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. Really, what is that? The time has come, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Another, at daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place, The people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving. So they stay here. He said, no, I must preach the good news. What good news? About the kingdom of God to all the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. That is why I came here, is to talk about the kingdom of God. Now, you're going to see the phrase kingdom of heaven in Matthew. It's because Matthew's a good Jew, and they used a, a euphemism. In other words, we didn't want to say kingdom of God. They said kingdom of heaven. It means exactly the same thing. Exactly the same thing. So Jesus says, let me tell you why I'm here. I'm here to talk about the kingdom of God. And I'm here to say to you, repent, because the kingdom of God is coming. Jesus was here to talk about the kingdom show you a couple of other things. Here's Matthew 4. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread everywhere, and he went all through this region. goes on and talks about all the regions he went through. What did he do? He preached the good news of the kingdom. That's the key to understanding why Jesus came here, why he's on a cross, and why he's raised from the dead. Jesus thinks he's here to usher in the kingdom of God, to tell you the good news about the kingdom of God. And it's not just Jesus, let me move on, because I want to go on into Acts, and you'll see this, when Philip, one of the early uh, disciples, followers, was preaching the good news of the kingdom of God, and the name of Jesus Christ, people were baptized, both men and women. What was he preaching? the good news about the kingdom of God. Paul, Apostle Paul, entered the synagogue. He entered a lot of synagogues. I mean, he went all over the world, right? A large portion, certainly the Roman world, arguing persuasively about what? The kingdom of God. Now, this is after Jesus is raised from the dead. This is the theme through the preaching of Jesus and the apostles. At the end of Paul's life, two years Very end of the book of Acts, chapter 28, he stayed, he's under arrest in Rome, stayed in his own rented house, welcomed everyone who came to see him, waiting on Caesar to dispose of his case. And Caesar eventually cut his head off, by the way. Boldly, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about Jesus Christ. So think about why did Jesus come? Why was he teaching? He says, I came to talk about the kingdom of God. So this kingdom of God. Is the central idea. It's the center of Jesus' teaching, and it is the foundation for everything else going to happen in the New Testament. We need to understand the kingdom of God. Here's a great uh, quote. This is a theologian, Richard Lisher, talking about the parables. Remember, I told you there are 39 parables, and I'm going to talk to you about them in different categories, and it's going to really bring out the breadth of Jesus' teaching. But this set of parables, is really foundational. He says most of the parables either explicitly or implicitly reference the kingdom of God, or Matthew calls it the kingdom of heaven. They ask things like, what can we compare to the kingdom of God, or what parable will we use to explain it? Even parables that don't explicitly reference the kingdom, like the Pharisee and the tax collector, Good Samaritan, we'll talk about those, are widely considered to be narrative illustrations of life in the kingdom. In other words, this idea of the kingdom of God is very Foundational. It is the key or the lens through which to understand Jesus' teaching. I want you to stop and think about this for a minute. Because when we go to the New Testament and we read things, we read it through the lens of Jesus came here uh, so that I could go to heaven. I'm not telling you that that's untrue, that Jesus is indeed the hope of heaven. But if we think that's, what, that's why he's here and that's why he's teaching, we're going to look at this from a, what I call a skewed perspective. If we look at it and say, Jesus came here to tell me how to live a good life, well, that's a different perspective, isn't it? In order to understand what Jesus is really trying to say, we need to let Jesus tell us, what is it you want to talk about? Jesus wants to talk about the kingdom of God. Well, next question, what is the kingdom of God? What is this thing he's talking about? Here's uh, We could talk a lot about this, but the easiest way to explain it is in the Lord's Prayer. This is out of Matthew chapter 6, what's called the Sermon on the Mount. He said, this is how you should pray. Here's an example. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And its most basic form, the kingdom of God, is where God rules. In other words, where God rules. That is the kingdom of God. That's both personal, but even more importantly in the scriptures, it's also global. So, for example, if... The king, if God rules in my life, because we all obey something, we all believe in something, we all belong to some group. If I happen to say, I belong to Jesus Christ, I obey God's commands, I follow Jesus Christ, I am becoming like Jesus Christ, then I am in the kingdom, meaning I'm under God's rule. If I do not, I'm going to argue I'm ruled by something. Jesus said the ruler of this present world is Satan, one form or another. The kingdom of God is where God rules. That can be individual. It can also be corporate. In fact, it is indeed corporate. When Jesus was talking about it, he said the kingdom of God is coming into this world, and it's going to take over human territory, not physical territory. Jesus didn't have a nation. He didn't have an army. He didn't have immigration control, right? What he did have was a message. He went to people preaching the word of God. And you begin to see groups of people who are under the rule of God. What do we call those groups of people in the New Testament and today? Think about this. I'd like you to think about it in this way. That's called the church, the ecclesia. When you see the word church, I want you to think about it this way. That is the group of people who are under the rule of God. Does that make sense? That's what Jesus is talking about. That's what the church is. That's what it means to follow Christ is to be in the kingdom or to be under God's rule. That's why Jesus says, repent, change your mind, change your direction. And let's go toward the kingdom of God. That's why all the commands of God are drawing us into living in the kingdom versus living in the world. Or living as a member of of some other group. The kingdom of God is the foundational teaching of Jesus. It It is the lens through which we need to look at what is the church, what is salvation, what is Christian living like... Jesus is going to approach every one of those questions through this lens. So that's why I think the kingdom parables are first. You're going to see them being very preeminent in the Gospels. In fact, we talked about uh, the sower in Matthew. Right after Matthew, there are seven parables about the kingdom and what Jesus is teaching. It's the foundational teaching. It's the lens. Does that make sense? So we're going to look at the kingdom parables and begin to flesh out what Jesus means about this kingdom. And I think you're going to see it's going to, it's sort of like going to the uh, ophthalmologist or the optometrist. And basically you go in there and you go, my vision, you know, is not quite right. And so they put those machines. Is this better? Is that better? Is this better? Is that better? I've never had to make so many decisions in my entire life. At one point, and if you want to drive them crazy, go, "Eh, about the same. Or, oh, I don't really care. What do you like better? You know, it's just, you know, you click, click, click. What are they doing? They're calibrating your vision to give you clear vision so you can see clearly. Understanding the kingdom of God according to Jesus is how you calibrate your vision to see and understand the teaching of Jesus clearly. Because you can read Jesus and you can make that be about whatever you want it to be about. Jesus wants it to be about the kingdom. So we're going to look at some parables of the kingdom. We're going to draw some conclusions about what is this. What is Jesus, what's this foundation that he wants to build? The first one is called the, the parable of the mustard seed. We're going to look at several, and they all have a little different direction to them. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven, or the, this is Matthew, so, or the kingdom of God, is like a mustard seed. And that is a mustard seed on the left. It is a tiny little seed. In fact, if you, when you, if you go to Israel, you'll see these mustard plants all over the place. You see these tiny little seeds, and if you open it up and you pour them out and you pop them in your mouth, eat them, it tastes like mustard. I mean, it's called a mustard seed for a reason. It tastes like mustard, but they're tiny little seeds. He said, the kingdom of God is kind of like that. It's kind of like that little mustard seed And a man took and he planted it in his field. Though it is the smallest of your seeds, when it grows, it's a large garden plant and becomes a tree, becomes very large. The birds of the air come and perch in its branches. On the right are some growing mustard plants. That's what it looks like. It's just all over the place. So he said, that's kind of what the kingdom of God is like. Kind of like that mustard seed. And they go, Well, I know that. I know what happens if you plant it eventually. You water it, it grows up, and it becomes very big, starts out really little. What's he saying? What's that telling us? He's saying that the kingdom of God, he's going to give us all different kinds of parables or comparisons of the kingdom of God looks like this. The kingdom of God is kind of like this. Well, the big comparison that jumps out of this is simply this the kingdom of God is something that starts really small from very humble beginnings and it ends up being very large. So by simple transference, he's talking then about this mustard seed, this kingdom, this teaching of Jesus, this good news about who he is and what he has done. This idea of following Jesus starts out really small and it ends up becoming very large. So here he's thinking a little more outward. If you remember in the book of Acts, after Jesus is raised from the dead, his followers are really disillusioned. They're like, we did not see this coming. How could the king, how could this Jesus be crucified by the Romans? And so there are 120 of them gathered together in Jerusalem, hiding from the Jews who were trying to stamp them out And Jesus rises from the dead and goes to these followers. He starts out with 120 people. And the kingdom begins to grow. And it grows by thousands within a few days. And it grows around the world. And today, billions of people in our world today believe this good news. Think about it throughout history. So this parable says the kingdom of God Is a humble thing in its beginning, but it is huge in its impact in the world. Okay? So the mustard seed, small things. Interesting, uh, Snodgrass, another theologian, makes an interesting comparison. He said, like the cross, because the cross is another one of those humble things that ends up being hugely impactful. The mustard seed parable is a challenge to the way we think. It's a challenge. In other words, he's saying the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. We think big things come from, oh, I don't know, a lot of money, a lot of talent, a big initiative. You know, you start, you just pour all these resources into something to make it big. He says, I want to recalibrate your thinking. And I'm going to tell you what the kingdom of God is like. It's like something insignificant that blows up. Mustard seed parable challenges human perception and judgment about smallness and significance. When you go to Israel and you pull out one of those mustard seeds, you go, this is not significant. Jesus is saying, kingdom of God's kind of like that. In your thinking, it's not significant. Because what is it really? It's the story that Jesus Christ came to the earth. He's crucified, raised from the dead. He overcomes death and ushers in God's rule into the world that we might live for eternity. Okay? Okay. That's a mustard seed story right there. Now watch what happens. Does that make sense? It challenges our thinking about smallness and significance. We see through a glass darkly, and too often we fail to recognize that the the seeds that God plants. This is so true in every aspect of our lives. We sometimes see little things. We think to ourselves, I don't see how that person will ever come to Christ. I don't see how this country will ever turn around. I don't see how this relationship can ever be healed. We tend to overlook the mustard seeds, the seeds that God plants. He said we should expect and start to implement mustard seed thinking. In other words, thinking in the kingdom realizes that in God's economy, insignificant things can be very, very powerful. That's one of the first messages Jesus wants to tell us about the kingdom. This kingdom's not like anything else. When God's ruling, little things become very powerful. That's why they call it the good news about the kingdom. Because, no offense, but I'm pretty insignificant in the big scheme of things. All of us, in the big scheme of things, pretty insignificant. I heard a story one time. It says, you know, one of the great compliments that you could say to somebody is, you're one in a million. What that means is, you're special, you're important. Do you realize if you say that to somebody in China, all you're saying is, eh, there's about a thousand people just like you. That's not very special, is it? Well, in the big scheme of things, we're kind of insignificant in our world. And sometimes our world thinks of human life as insignificant, as you and I as just a passing story. God says, not the kingdom way. The kingdom way, a mustard seed is hugely powerful. We need to think about this kind of mustard seed thinking. Let me give you a great example. It's not a parable. It's a teaching of Jesus. Remember in Matthew chapter 17, records an event where he goes to his disciples and they said, why can we not make this happen? And he said, oh, you have little faith. If you had faith like a mustard seed, you could move mountains. Do you see the parallel here? You see the thread that's running through it? The kingdom of God allows a little bit of faith to move mountains. That's true in our lives, and it's true in the world. Let me skip to the second one. He tells them another parable. I chose these out of Matthew, but you can see the other places you can find them. Well, let me pause there in case there's a question, because this is going to give you a different perspective on the kingdom. But I really want you to think about that in your life, but also in the world. Because sometimes we think, how, how can God possibly fix me, heal me? How can he heal this? How can he save my child? How can God do this? He said, you give me faith like a mustard seed will move mountains. And sometimes we look at our world and we think, who could ever put this world right? And God says, kingdom of God, a mustard seed will do great things. That's really good news. Question? Yes.
1: Yes. Um, In the historical context at this time, um, what would the hearer understand to be the opposite, or what would be juxtaposed to the kingdom of God? Would it be governments, religious structures, um, hearts of the culture? What what would it be?
0: Brilliant question. Wish I'd thought of it. That that is a great contrast. What is not the kingdom of God? You'll see, and I'm going to tell you what the scripture says, the kingdom of this world the rulers of this world. You're going to see those phrases in the New Testament. The rulers of this world, the princes of this world, the kingdoms of this world. In other words, those that are not under God's rule, they are under man's authority. In other words, I'm God. Really specifically, I'll tell you how this would have hit the people, particularly the people Jesus is talking to. I want you to think who they are. They are Jews living in Judea, and they are completely under the control of the Roman Empire. They are not treated particularly well. They are taxed very heavily. They are oppressed people by the government of this world and by Caesar who says, I am the God of this world. I am the most powerful person in this world. Jesus comes in and everybody's like, but apparently so, yeah. And we don't like it and we are oppressed. Jesus comes and said, there's a new kingdom. It's called the one that God rules. And they say, that's awesome, but you know, the kingdom of the world is very powerful. And Jesus said, I'm going to tell you a story about a mustard seed. You have this much faith, God topples these kingdoms. That's would have been the other side of that, or the kingdoms of the world, or the rulers of this world, the authority of humanity. That's a great question. You'll see the world, that phrase, the world meaning the world system, the power structures of this world, that are ruled by greed, oppression, pride, you know, self-interest, versus ruled by God.
1: Is the power of the kingdom of God a direct threat and competitor to the power and authority of worldly government?
0: Yes, uh, it is, and let me use that. To segue into the leaven, because I want to go to the next parable and answer that question. Does the kingdom of God, because let me rephrase it, because it's another good question. You guys are on your game tonight. Is the kingdom of God coexist with the kingdoms of the world? Is it a threat or does it coexist? This turns out to be a crucially important question for you and me, because some of us, nobody in this room, some of us, Christians live like it is. I'm in the kingdom of, kind of like we have dual citizenship. I'm in the kingdom of God, primarily on Sunday morning. And I am in the kingdom of the world, meaning I'm under the rules of the world, I'm chasing the values of this world the rest of the time. I'm kind of a dual citizen. Jesus says the kingdom of God is a very big existential threat to the kingdoms of the world. Look at this. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of God, It's Matthew, so he uses heaven. The kingdom of God is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. And he stops there. I mean, aren't these parables interesting? Now you've got to engage your brain. The kingdom of God is like yeast or technically leaven, but for our purposes, it doesn't matter. Yeast, you put it in this dough and you knead the dough and the next thing you know, the whole thing is leavened. It's not like, oh, I got a little yeast here and this is gonna rise. That's not, that's gonna be a saltine. It's not gonna rise. No, it actually pervades the whole thing. You don't see it happening. You don't know how it happens. You just know that you can't undo the yeast. You can't keep the yeast in this part of the dough. When you need the dough, it moves all through it. He said, that's what the kingdom of God is like. Direct implication for that question. Can I keep the kingdom of God here? And the kingdoms of the world there, Jesus said, you put that leaven in there, it's going everywhere. Really important points in here. Number one, the kingdom of God is subversive. Jesus says it's sort of like leaven. You don't see it working. You can't. What are you going to do? You put some yeast into the dough and you go, oh, no, I put yeast into the dough. I need to stop this process. Yeah, throw it away because you ain't stopping that process. It's going to leaven the whole the whole batch of dough. The kingdom of God is like that. Once it comes here, it will not stop. It cannot be contained. You cannot stop it. That's why the Roman Empire tried to stamp out Christianity for 200 years from about actually 60 A.D., but they really kicked it into gear about 90 A.D. until 313 A.D., so over 200 years, It was the public policy of the Roman empire to stamp out Christianity. Thousands upon tens of thousands of Christians died. They could not meet openly. I mean, it was the policy of the most powerful government in the world to stamp out Christianity. Did it work? Apparently not. Where's Rome? Gone. Where's the church? Thriving. That's what Jesus is saying. The kingdom of God will not tolerate coexistence any more than yeast will stay in one little part of your dough. Isn't that brilliant? Jesus is brilliant. And it's very subversive. He taught this parable, and people go, wait a minute. And you go read the letters of Paul in Colossians and Romans, and he starts to spell this out. And he said, Caesar says he's your Lord, but actually Jesus Christ is Lord. That was a treasonous thing to say. It was very subversive. It was so subversive, the Roman Empire killed Paul for preaching that and killed Christians for preaching that. So the kingdom of God is subversive. It does not coexist. It's going to seep through every every human heart and every human institution. Secondly, I mean, there's so many powerful lessons from this short thing. The kingdom of God, like the mustard seed, talks kind of about an outward power, The kingdom of God is like yeast that works inside you. It's not institutional. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that you shouldn't build a church building, you shouldn't have church services. In fact, we're called to do that. But the point is, the kingdom is not this place. The kingdom is more than this place. It's not institutional. It is the body of believers. We could be meeting in a shack We could meet in a Walmart. We could meet anywhere we want, and we are still the kingdom. The kingdom of God is working in us. In fact, here's something Jesus said to the Pharisees. When the Pharisees came to him and when they said, when is the kingdom of God coming? When is the rule of God coming to get rid of Caesar? We are really oppressed. He said, the kingdom of God doesn't come with your observation. It's like leaven. You don't actually see it leavening the loaf. He said, nor does it come uh, with, with your preparation. People are not going to point and say, oh, there's the kingdom, or there's the kingdom, because the kingdom of God is within you. It's like that leaven. You don't see it, but you sure see its effect, don't you? Another interesting lesson from this. The dough is never the same after its leaven. You bake that dough before its leaven, you have saltines. You bake it after its leaven, you have croissants. They're different. The leaven point is the the word of God, this submitting to the rule of God, doesn't just change what we do, it changes who we are. Does that make sense? God doesn't say, I came to give you a bunch of rules so you will behave differently. No, I came to stick some leaven in your heart so that you will be different a great phrase i've used this before you may remember it you read the book of rome and you read the rest of the new testament actually jesus didn't come to make people better he came to make new people that makes sense he came to make new people he didn't come to say oh your life's kind of a mess Okay, I want you to start doing this. I want you to stop doing this. I want you to start that, start that. Okay, quit doing that. Go to church 2.5 times a month. And okay, I think you'll be good. That's not what the New Testament's about. Can you read it that way? Yes. It's called a tremendous adventure in missing the point. (laughs) That is a great adventure in completely missing the point. Because the yeast doesn't change what you do. It changes who you are. And you're going to see all through. The New Testament, the idea of rebirth, becoming a new person. My old person has died. I am born again. That's becoming something new. So the leaven is subversive. It will not coexist. It grows inside us. It changes who we are, not just what we do. And here's the really interesting part. It grows by its power, not ours. You don't make that bread rise by your power. The yeast does it. In other words, you don't become a follower of Christ by trying really hard. You become a citizen of the kingdom, a follower of Christ, by submitting to God's rule, and God changes us. So you can see how you can read the New Testament and get this kind of workspace salvation. You can fall into this, I need to try harder, I'm not good enough. You are going to change because we're not okay in our sin. But the kingdom does that. The word of God does that. Powerful, powerful parable. Okay? Question?
1: Does God know if we choose the kingdom way?
0: Does God know if we choose the kingdom? That is the essence of, quote, Becoming a Christian. I want to talk... Jesus has some salvation parables, and I want to talk about it, but let me go ahead and tie this piece in. So then you ask the question, what does it look like to become a member, citizen, whatever, of the kingdom of God? We call that being saved. Make sense? I want you to think about the church is the place where God rules. I want you to think about entering the kingdom is what we call being saved. Now think about this. So what do you need to do to be saved? Well, you need to repent and believe the good news. That's what Jesus said. That's what the rest of the New Testament says. You're saved by grace, meaning it's God's power, it's not yours. Through your faith, your trust. In other words, all you do is say, I surrender, and I'm going to walk this path. That is something that happens in our heart. That's something that God sees very clearly. We are transformed. Ephesians 1.13, I know I quote this a lot, but I want you to see how all of this is connected. He said, when you trusted, when you believed, when you had faith, it's all the same word, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit who lives inside you. And then Paul says, and that Holy Spirit will finish the work that he starts in you. In other words, that's leaven. You're going to change. I submit to God's rule. Now, if I'm dual citizenship, I go, well, I submit to God's rule on Sunday, but then Monday I follow the world. Paul says, I don't think you understand what we're talking about. Leaven doesn't work that way. Does that make sense? You're in or you're out. And it is a submitting to God and a transformation that happens inside of us. Yes, God sees that. God knows his own because we're sealed with the spirit when we trust God. Those are all ways of saying we're going to enter the kingdom. Entering the kingdom is what we call being saved. The kingdom is what we call the church. Well, let me go on to another one because there's another, one, one more angle I want to look at. Here's another parable. Actually, this is a pair, by the way, and it's it's a pedagogical tool, meaning it's an easy way to remember. These two parables mean exactly the same thing. He tells them right together. He actually does this quite a bit. This is called a pair. They're twin parables. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is like a treasure hidden in a field. Now, that's interesting. We've got a totally different tack here. It's like a treasure in a field. And when a man found it, oh, he hid it again. And then he went and sold everything he had, and he bought that field. He said, again, similarly, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is like a merchant. And he was out looking for pearls, and he found this one pearl that was a treasure. He went away and sold everything. He liquidated his business to get that one pearl. He says, that's what the kingdom of God is like. Well, now, that's another, that's another lens on the kingdom, isn't it? What's he talking about there? Well, first of all, by the way, this is only in Matthew this is a really interesting uh, pair of parables. In ancient times, this made a lot of sense to them because you and I tend to store our money in the bank or in a jar buried in our backyard. But seriously, people in those days, there are no banks. They buried their treasure. They'd sometimes put it in a cistern full of water, put it in a you know, watertight thing, lower it in there. Sometimes they would often bury it. And so this was very common. So they understood this is a treasure that someone buried in a field, and then they died, and nobody knew it was there. And then one day, this guy finds it and realizes, I'm buying this field, puts it back. I'm going to come back, and I'm going to get this treasure. Happened all the time. In fact, archaeologists excavating houses frequently find pieces of gold and some jewelry buried. The houses had dirt floors that would be buried in a corner of the house a couple feet down and then packed down on top, you know, where people been walking on it. That was their bank. Happened all the time. In fact, this is fascinating. Totally off the point, but you're going to want to know this. Okay, think of the Dead Sea Scrolls. A lot of stuff in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Dead Sea Scrolls is about 2,000 years old, right around the time of Jesus. And there's all kinds of scrolls, and they are copies of the, Bible, of the Old Testament and some other things. But one of the scrolls is really interesting. It's called the Copper Scroll because it's a piece of copper, and they had engraved the Hebrew writing on it, this writing, and then they rolled up this copper scroll. You talk about a real mess. When they found this thing, it's 2,000 years old. It's crumbling. It was real work to unroll this scroll. But after several years, they were able to carefully unroll the scroll, and they read it, and you know what's on this copper scroll? This is fascinating. It is the location of buried treasures that this community had obviously buried and how to get to the treasures. That scroll was recording where they would buried their treasure so that when the guy that buried it died, the next generation of people who lived in that community would know where their bank accounts were, right? So this is a really common idea of basically hiding this. Interesting thing about it is, once you stop and think about the guy or the merchant, either one, the merchant or the guy, they go, they sell everything they have to buy this one plot of land or to buy this one pearl. Think about what their families and friends are thinking. Like, man, this is not a good business move. You should not liquidate this. You can't put all your eggs in one basket. I mean, it's a nice field. It's a pretty pearl. But really, everything that you have? But look at the attitude of the men. The merchant and the man in the field, the parable indicates they gladly, as quickly as they could, joyfully, they don't appear to have done any cost-benefit analysis, any future value calculations. They basically just said, that's worth everything I have. And they liquidate it and they buy it. They don't seem to feel like there's any risk. They don't even seem to think like there's any sacrifice. What would you sell your house to buy? What would you sell everything you have to buy? I mean, that's hitting you and me just like it hit them. They go, okay, wait, this is pretty serious. And you're saying that's what the kingdom of God is like? What's Jesus effectively saying? He's saying two things. The kingdom of God is worth everything that you have. In other words, if you came and said, how can I get the kingdom of God? Let me translate it. How can I be saved? Remember, entering the kingdom of God is what we call being saved. And he you're saying, how can I be saved? He said, well, it's actually worth everything that you have. Remember the rich young ruler? Comes to Jesus and said, I'm a good person. What do I need to do? Now, Jesus isn't telling all of us to do this, but make this connection. What's he saying? Well, you know what? Actually, the kingdom of heaven is worth all you have. Why don't you go sell everything you have and you give it to the poor? You come follow me. Wow. He wasn't ready to do that, was he? But Jesus' message in this parable is the kingdom of heaven is worth everything that you have. But he's also saying this, the kingdom of God costs more than you have. It's worth everything you have to be saved, but it actually, you don't have enough money for it. This is interesting, too. I want to put another teaching of Jesus into perspective. I want want you to read this parable through this lens, because people have heartburn with this parable. You hear this this story, you hear this explained away. This is going to make a ton of sense. He said, i tell you the truth, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. I tell you, it's actually easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, and they said, who then can be saved? You see, they're getting it. They understand entering the kingdom of heaven is being saved. And he says, even a rich man doesn't have enough to buy this. They're like, well, if the rich man doesn't have enough to buy it, who could possibly be saved? The kingdom is worth everything you have, but it costs more than you have. Here's another story I want you to read through this lens. This is the famous story about Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to Jesus. He said, we know you're a teacher from God. He comes to him secretly because he said, you know, you've got to be talking for God. This kingdom thing has to be real. Jesus says, i tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God. You can't get into the kingdom of God unless you're born again. And Nicodemus says... I don't understand. How can you be born again when you're old? Surely you can't enter a second time to your mother's womb and be born again. What's he just saying? The kingdom's worth everything you have and you don't have enough. You only enter the kingdom of God with your skin. You don't enter it with any possessions. You don't enter it with anything other than like a newborn baby. Jesus is talking about the kingdom in very consistent terms. If you're gonna get into the kingdom of heaven, You're going to have to become something new. He didn't say you need unless you clean up your act, unless you behave better, you can't enter kingdom. He says no, you can't get in at all. Well, I got a lot of money. You can't. You don't have enough money. Well, how can I get in? You just need to become a baby. You need to become something you are not. Think of eleven. In other words, you submit. I'll transform you. I want you to see all these teachings of Jesus. I'm putting these in here just to... I hope that you can see when you read these things, you have to read them through this lens of the kingdom of God. That's what being saved is. So, let me pause here for a minute because I want to talk about the so what of this. But let's take a couple questions. Parables are meant to be applied. The first part is understanding. And I hope that this is helpful to you to begin to see how Jesus thinks about what he's teaching, and how Jesus sees all of this as connecting together. I desperately want you to see all of the Bible, certainly all of the New Testament, as being tied together. The only way to tie this together is the way Jesus ties it together, and that is this is all about a new kingdom. These parables begin to describe the kingdom, and as you can see, it's pretty powerful. Question?
1: Um, If the kingdom of God is subversive and cannot coexist with the kingdom of this world, how do we reconcile being called by Scripture to submit to the authority of this world?
0: Oh, absolutely. That's a good question. I want to make a differentiation between being a good citizen of your country, because I think you ought to be patriotic. I think we should be patriotic Americans. I think we should obey the laws of America as long as they don't conflict with the laws of God, because we don't have dual citizenship. We are, the Bible calls us this all the time, we are strangers in this land. We are visitors in this world. We are sojourners, to use an Old Testament word, that the New Testament uses too. In other words, you don't have a permanent home here. But while you're here, I want you to be a good citizen. I want you, we're going to talk, this isn't the end of Jesus' teaching, this is a foundation. He's going to start to spell out, well, what does it look like to be in the kingdom and be moving around in this world. We're going to talk about that. He's got a bunch of parables to explain that. But let me give you this much answer. We are good citizens. We submit to the rule. We do not accept the authority of this world in this sense. I don't mean don't disobey the laws. We don't accept the authority of a, the United States Congress to tell us you know, that you need to pay your taxes or whatever. That's not what I mean. What I mean is this. We do not accept the authority of this world to acknowledge that you are God, and you have the answer to life that you can solve my problems that you can give me happiness that you can tell me that my life is about pursuing wealth or fame or fortune or whatever you do not rule my heart i will obey the social laws i want to make a distinction there between serving a god of this world and obeying the government of this world that makes sense We're going to obey the laws. We're not serving it. Paul said, you're going to obey Caesar. You're going to honor Caesar. In fact, I want you to pray for Caesar. He says, but Caesar is not your Lord. Caesar does not tell you what the meaning of life is. Caesar does not tell you who you're following and who you're trying to be. Because this world, you say, well, that's a thin distinction. It's not. I want you to think about it. You turn on your TV. That television is trying to tell you what you believe, what's right, what's wrong, who you should be, What you should be pursuing in life, I'll obey the laws, but I'm not interested in you telling me what the meaning of life is and what I should be chasing in this world because I am a citizen of the kingdom, and I'm following this. You can be a citizen of the kingdom of God and be a good citizen of America. So that's a great question. Obeying the laws does not mean acknowledging the God of this world. Great question.
1: This is kind of a big topic, but I have several questions about it. Is it possible to move in and out of the kingdom? If a person is saved as a child, does the analogy of the yeast hold and it's always there? How does it grow in an environment that's not hospitable? Can someone move away from the kingdom? And if they do, do they have to move back in order to go to heaven when they die?
0: Yeah, this is a question that Christians have different opinions about, which means that they're wrong. Let's talk about this for a minute, but I'm just going to dip my toe in this. Uh, This is a fair question. It's a good question. The question actually needs to be what does Jesus, what does the New Testament, the inspired word of God, say about this idea of salvation? I'm actually going to talk about this a lot when we get to the salvation parables, but I don't want to dodge it. Let me tickle your your fancy here, but we'll talk about this more when we see, because again, we're not through with Jesus' teaching, this is the foundation. We're going to use this lens because Jesus did or everything else he teaches. But he's got a lot more to say. And we're going to talk about salvation parables. But basically, the idea of you're in the kingdom or you're not in the kingdom. You're not one foot in the kingdom and one foot outside the kingdom. And so we need to be followers of Jesus Christ. Some Christians think you can actually surrender to Jesus Christ You can put your trust in him. The Holy Spirit begins to transform you, but you have enough will to reject God and, I hate this phrase, lose your salvation. Terrible phrase. Basically, turn your back on the kingdom and on God. Some Christians believe that 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 is possible, that the New Testament talks about it, and there's some reason for that, and we'll go into it a little bit. Others would say, If you truly submit to God and the Holy Spirit is within you, God is going to accomplish this transformation. If you turned away, you were never committed. I mean, you never surrendered to God. Why would they say that? I want you to think about the parable of the sower again. Remember, four soil, three of them accepted the word joyfully. But two of those, the one that Accepted it joyfully, but as soon as trouble came, well, there's no roots. It burns up. The next one grows up, but as the cares of the world, like, well, but I kind of want wealth. And wait, wait, I I need this, I need this. And that choked it out. Remember, his parable was like weeds choking you out. It's only the one that's in the good soil that ends up bearing fruit that he talks about. So that's why people would think, no, that seed never took hold. Because if it did... It's going to bear fruit. So Christians, and I'm really painting with a broad brush, kind of want to understand this in two different ways. And there's a thread of commonality and truth there. As far as what it means for you and me, the scripture is really clear. This is kind of a hypothetical third-party thing. As far as you and I, we know exactly what we need to do. We need to surrender to Jesus Christ and begin to follow him and let the yeast, let the Holy Spirit, if you will, transform us. But Christians... Differ on that just a little bit. We'll talk more about it in salvation. But that's a good question. Well, let's talk about our... our uh, I have two thoughts for you on application. I hope that this stimulates a lot of your thoughts. I haven't said anything wise to you here, but I hope that by presenting Jesus' teaching, you begin to think about this is how Jesus thinks about me, my life. This is how he thinks about the good news of the gospel. This is what Jesus thinks is going on in the world because I want to think about it the way he does because that's reality no matter what it seems like. Two thoughts, bad news and good news. Bad news, you do not have enough connections. You do not have enough talents. You do not have enough money to get into the kingdom of God. There is nothing that you can do. You look at these parables, there's not one parable here that said, this is the little mustard seed that could. All the others were losers, but he's the mustard seed that could, and he achieved great things, right? It says, ah, here's the leaven, and you don't even need leaven. You can wave your wand and make the dough be what you want to be. There's nothing in these parables that talk about you doing anything. It's all about what God is going to do. The kingdom of God is the power, like the yeast. We said the yeast grows of its own power, not, the per- not mine. And so the bad news is you do not have enough, you don't have enough money to buy your way in the kingdom of heaven. You don't have enough stuff to liquidate. You don't have enough good deeds. You don't have enough willpower to make yourself presentable to God. This is the gospel. You know a lot of this. But that's what Jesus is saying about the kingdom. And at first you go, this is not good. If the rich guy can't get in, I don't have enough to buy my way in. If it's got to be like yeast... There is no way this guy is ever going to act well. I mean, a day or two, maybe, there is no way I'm going to shape up enough to be worthy of God. We feel that way sometimes. That's true. That's true. If you think you can't measure up, that's true. Here's the good news. You have a ticket to get into the kingdom. It's been purchased for you, and it's waiting for you at will call. You want to get into the kingdom of heaven? You have a ticket. It's at will call, and it's paid for. That's what Jesus was doing. That's what the cross is about. He's bringing the kingdom of God in, and not only is he ushering in the kingdom, he is also giving you the ticket to get in. That's what the gospel is about. You aren't good enough. There's nothing about the kingdom that you can acquire on your own. And Jesus Christ said, I have a ticket waiting for you at Will Call. What do you need to do to pick it up? You need to walk over there and trust that, pick up that ticket. Really interesting parables that have a personal and a global impact. This is about the kingdom in the world. It's about what we, as a group of believers, the church, meaning the kingdom in this place, at this place, there's a kingdom all over the world, but this is the kingdom in this place, as this body of believers. He's giving us some clues about what we're about in the world. It's really encouraging. He says, you may look like a little mustard seed in America. You may look like a little mustard seed compared to the needs and the poverty and the oppression and the bad things happening in your life and in this community. But take heart. The kingdom of God is subversive, it's powerful, and it doesn't rely on you and me. We're going to go act, but it's not on us. It's like when uh, Moses and the Israelites were facing the Egyptians. Remember this back in the book of Exodus? Remember what Moses says to the uh, Israelites when they're gathered there, got Red Sea on one side, got Pharaoh and his army on the other, looked down, got a pocket knife. They're worried, and they turn to Moses and they go, boy, how'd you get us in this situation? Or something to that effect. And he says, you just need to be still. God will fight this battle for you. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. He that is in you, I'm quoting some more scripture here, is greater than he that is in the world. You are subversive, you are powerful, you cannot be stopped because the word of God cannot be stopped. That's true globally, but it's also true personally. There's nothing in your life that the power of the kingdom cannot transform you into. God has the power to make us citizens of the kingdom. Heaven, it turns out, now this is going to be unpopular to the world, but this is also what Jesus taught. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Let me translate that into our terms. The kingdom of God is for members only. The kingdom of God is only for members. There is only one way to get there, and that's through Jesus Christ. And the good news is you have a ticket at Will Call. So if you haven't picked up your ticket, and I'm kind of serious about this, think about you need to pick up your ticket you got a choice to make here. If you have picked up your ticket, I want you to get out there and tell everybody about the show. Right? Hey, there's some good news. God has erupted into this world, and he is setting things right. And in fact, if you'd like to know, I'll tell you how he's setting things right in my life. That's called spreading the gospel. Does that make sense? Because we're going to use this kingdom language a lot because Jesus is going to use it a lot. So I just want you, your assignment this week is not to do anything... I want you to think about it. I want you to immerse yourself in this and begin to think about who you are and what you do and what church is about and what the word is about. I want you to think about it in this way. Next week, because I need you to be prepared for next week. It's better to talk about this before we talk about the salvation parables. So next week, life and death subject. Jesus has some parables about heaven and hell and judgment. So beware. Come with your ticket next week. I'll see you guys next week.